Take your Bible, please, and open to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. The Galilean ministry continues in the life of Christ. We are looking at this gospel, the shortest, in some respects, most difficult of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke being synoptics, and then John the outlier. And these gospels draw largely from what Mark wrote, Luke and Matthew being written later. Mark is an extraordinary writer under the inspiration of God's Spirit, the way he structures things. Even though it's compact, he does not miss anything, and his organization skills are a delight to study. We're looking at two things this morning. They're very simple. We're looking at Christ getting away to pray, and we're looking at the selection of the apostles. That's all we're looking at. These two very simple events where Christ goes to pray, and he is going to select the apostles. And then we're going to try to apply those simple observations of his prayer life and the selection of these 12 and what it means for you and me. The crowds continue to explode. The masses come out to hear this Jesus. At the same rate the crowds are growing, opposition is growing. And that's where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Now, many of you use these devices and they have, when you touch it, it has a feedback. That's called haptic, a haptic feedback where it vibrates or talks to you. The word touch here in Greek is the word hapto. So we take these Greek words and bring them into English. I know it's going to spiritually enrich you, but just thought I'd share that with you. All right, the disciples come on board, and Jesus withdraws to the Sea of Galilee. The withdrawal word is a little bit of a tell that he's trying to get out as a refuge. Dr. D. Edmund Hebert wrote, The conflict with the Pharisees did not diminish Jesus' popularity with the masses. They seemed to draw the common people to him for, from even larger numbers. Now, in verse 7, the Greek New Testament begins with the phrase, With the disciples. He withdrew. Our English translators smoothed the reading a little bit, but the point of the emphasis, this is with the disciples. The movement of Mark's gospel is very important to watch. And so it's taking his disciples uh, away to the edge of the Sea of Galilee. We can envision the synagogue, whether it was Capernaum or others, maybe could hold 100 people standing at most. Now we have thousands coming on the scene. So on the one hand, the opposition of the religious leaders who have stated clearly they want to kill him, uh, if he's in a larger group, makes it a little harder to, to capture him, a little harder to deceive him and trip him up. So he's moving out of the centers of these small synagogues out into the open. The words and works of Jesus travel, and Mark records twice, only time in the gospel he uses it, great multitude and great crowd. This is what we might call the highlight of the crowd scenes in Mark's recollection. He seems to differentiate from the local Galileans to those that come from the surrounding areas. So verses 7 and 8 are a general description of what we call Israel's neighbors. The word has traveled to Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem. That would be Israel proper. But then when you read Idumea, Transjordan, the coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon and so forth, this is going northwest, south, and below 
the land of Israel. So the word spreading, first century, no formal communication, no newsprint, it's word of mouth. And the words and works of Jesus are getting so loud because of the miracles and the things he's doing and saying it's spreading. Mark is the only writer who mentions this small boat. None of the other Gospels mention it, and it's almost comical. Uh, Jesus says, hey, make sure there's a little boat ready in, in case I get pushed into the water, so to speak, by all the crowds wanting help. Uh, let's have a boat ready so we can make an escape if necessary. Now, to think about the crowds coming from all these regions, uh, why would they come? If you think of a bell curve of people's interest from curiosity to desperation, they're curious of what is he saying? What's he doing? Is it true? Can he perform miracles? Is he, is, are the stories we're hearing really true to people who are desperate, who've heard rumor that he's healed people, that he's cured diseases, that he made a lame man walk? If those are true, maybe out of desperation I have a chance to see him and maybe talk to him and touch him and receive that type of benefit. So we go from those who are just curious to those who are desperate. And we think of it in modern terminology, uh, you'll pay a lot of money, I'll pay a lot of money to see a concert, a performer, an artist I want to see. That's curiosity, it's intrigue, it's, I'm captured with this person's talent or ability, or I like whatever they do. But it's a little different when you're desperate, when you want something that you can't find a remedy to any other way. And the text is clear that he graciously healed many who were afflicted. He doesn't just have the scribes and Pharisees who want to kill him. He has spiritual adversaries as well. Verse 11, when the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Now, we've talked about some suffering, not all, can be associated with demons or oppression, demonic oppression, spiritual oppression, as well as some suffering can be because of our sin. Well, in this crowd of people that he's healing, some of them obviously were harassed or oppressed by demons. And so the response when Jesus comes on board is they fall down, which is a sign of submission to authority, and they shout. And the word shout here is just, it's a simple word. There's nothing magical about the deeper meaning of the word shout, but it's used in the New Testament of epileptics. It's used of women and childbirth. It's used of the death cry of Jesus Christ on the cross as well as here of the demons who are shouting, you are the Son of God. It's remarkable to me that the demons recognize this Jesus, but the scribes and the Pharisees do not, and even his close friends, the disciples, do not. The spiritual realm knows who this Jesus is, and they're affected by him and his power and his presence, and they flee at him, and they're cast out by him, and they're sent away by his word. They know who he is. I think we're meant to see that not only do the demons recognize the Son of God in the absence of scribes, Pharisees, and the disciples, uh, he's not going to let the demons be the ones to announce him. He's going to let his person, his work, what God does through him, and, most, and primarily the apostle Peter will be the one who will identify him as Messiah. He's not going to let demons have the role or the privilege to say who he is, and so he tells them to be quiet. It's reserved for Christ to let himself be revealed. Now, a sidebar lesson to me as I studied this passage and read through it this past week, we, we see those who are troubled and afflicted and diseased, 
the word for healed in the text is therapueo, therapueo, where we get the word therapy. Uh, the, word for, uh, the word for afflictions, that they were afflicted, is the same word used in John 19.1 where Jesus is scourged and afflicted. So he comes to give therapy, to heal those who are afflicted in pain. And on that curiosity to desperate scale, I wonder, when do you, when do I come to Christ? Obviously, we come to Christ first when we trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. We believe that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life, are forgiven of their sins, and begin a relationship with this Jesus. That's the benchmark. But after that, when do you come to Christ? When do you need him? And most of us in this room, if we've known Christ for any length of time, after, let's say, some of the excitement wears off of that initial relationship, we wax and wane in our relationship. We're humans. We're, we're fallen creatures. But it seems to me when I'm afflicted in the marriage, in the pocketbook, with the job market, with one of my children who's breaking my heart, with a grandchild who's breaking my heart, with something I can't bring my resources to fix, I can't get the right diagnosis. I don't have enough money to resolve the issue. I don't have enough whatever to remedy the situation. That time is when I go to God. And I've shared this many times. This is nothing new. You've heard me say this before. I think the corollary is pretty chilling. Is it fair to say God allows in his sovereign umbrella in our fallen estate, in a fallen condition, believers though we be, does he allow these troubles these afflictions to happen so that then we go to him. I don't even like to say it, but I do think it a lot. The corollary is a little chilling. Because absent trouble, absent problems, absent things we can't fix, we don't really need Jesus anymore. That's the danger of our Western culture in no small part. I don't need, he's sort of an appendage over here that I go to on a weekend or a small group, but it's really not something I'm connected to vitally, integrally in my spiritual life. When was the last time you eagerly sought that time with him? And this sets up what is going to happen, I would argue, in the story of the appointing, which begins in verse 13. He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To, him, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Mark, in his gospel, has already talked about disciples, but this is the first time the summoning of the apostles occurs. And again, the synoptics order these events a little differently. Not that the timing is wrong, just the way they capture the storyline. And Mark introduces the summoning and the appointment of the apostles here. What we do know from Matthew and Luke is that Jesus spent the night in prayer, Luke 6 in particular, before he chose these men. The language is very interesting to me, that he summoned them, 
And think of the way we respond to a court summons, a jury summons. We're summoned to appear in something. If you get that letter that's certified and you're summoned, it's a little bit different than just a bill in the mail. It's, like, it's got some authority behind it. Keep that feeling in hand. And then he appointed them, which literally means he made them. And if you followed when I read the verse, he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted he picks them. Now, when we take Luke's gospel and we see he spent the whole night in prayer on this selection, it heightens the narrative to say the God-man got away to be alone with the Father before he picked these 12 individuals. This summon was not an interview. It wasn't to see, are you interested in doing this? Uh, let's talk about your skills and qualifications. Let's look at your personality, your vita, your job record as a fisherman, as a tax player. Let's see how well you performed historically. What's your marriage like? How, how do you manage your money? What kind of person are you going to show up to work on time? It was a summons. And then he makes them, he appoints them to apostleship, which is striking because the world would not do it this way. The world would have interview processes and reviews and tests. You take all sorts of instruments to see if you're a fit for the job. We'd look at your track record. We'd have all sorts of conditions in your employment. Christ handpicked them, summoned them, and made them his apostles. You might say they didn't have a choice in the matter. Now the 12 is an interesting observation. We have 12 patriarchs. We have 12 tribes. These 12 men, obviously one will defect. Judas will fail. Uh, but the 12 will be handpicked by him, and these 12 will be entrusted with the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. So the beginning of the gospel, Jesus comes on the scene. He's identified and authenticated by the voice of God, the Spirit of God planting on him. He performs signs and wonders that proves he's the God-man. People start to follow him. He preaches in synagogues, and people come out of the woodwork to hear him. The word travels so fast, they're coming from the Transjordan areas around Israel to find out who is this guy and what is he really doing. And now he slips away, prays all night, and handpicks 12 because he's going to vest himself in those 12 men for the next 36 months or so, and then he's going to be gone. The gospel record is the beginning of your salvation story and mine. And it started when he picked these men and he will do something with them and to them and empower them to be otherworldly emissaries for him. The text is very clear on the reason of the appointment. He says so that they would be with him. Number one, they're going to be with Christ for those 36 months. They're going to travel with him. They're going to be chased out of town with him. They'll be living in the wilderness for a while with him. They'll be in the cities They'll be in synagogues. They'll be in conflict with scribes and Pharisees. They'll see all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders. He'll teach them. And the gospel records uniquely move from crowds to basically a small group. And the bulk of Christ's life is with these men. They're going to see him, watch him, see him sleep in a boat, see him get frustrated see him cast out demons, see him turn loaves and fishes to feed thousands of people, they're going to be with him for those 30-some months. Secondly, that they would go out to preach. The word Caruso, we've been talking about, the heralding message, not just standing up in front of a group with a Bible and telling people what the Bible means. The Caruso was to tell the story of Christ, to go out and spread the word, the proclamation, Caruso, 
of the gospel. And third, that they would have authority, interestingly, over demons. Now, as you study the unfolding of the gospel and how they're with him, they're going to teach about him, and they're going to cast out demons. It seems kind of strange that we'd focus on, Jesus would talk about demons and casting them out. But you have to step back and see why. The ability to cast out a demon would both mean you had authority and you were identified with someone. They have to have the authority to do it. And that authority comes from someone else. It comes from Christ. Because no one could, there's no book on how to cast out a demon. I mean, there are, but they don't work. You have to be empowered by God. It's the same with a gift. We talk about gifts of healing. Well, a gift of healing meant I could go in and heal somebody. I wouldn't wear these anymore if I had the gift of healing. I'd throw them out. I can't stand them. I'd be rid of back issues and arthritis and so forth and so on. If you have the gift, you can do it. A gift of healing can administer it. God heals, but that gift is gone in the way we saw it in the, in the New Testament. Yes, some people get healed, not by the person who has a gift of healing, or he or she could do it at will. To cast out a demon was the same thing. You could pray, the Jews tried it, it didn't work. Remember how they get beat up and run out when they try it? But if the word of Christ, the authority comes, and you're identified as of Christ, you can do it because you're doing it in Christ's power, not your own. That's the differentiation of Christ using a person versus a person having an ability. Well, the apostles are going to be authenticated and identified as having been with Jesus and to be able to teach what Jesus taught. This can't be overstated. This is so important. The reason the apostolic teaching, what we call our New Testament, is so important is because they were with Jesus and he uniquely empowered them. He summoned them. He picked them. He said, you're going to do this. And I'm going to show you for three years. That's not as important as what I'm going to do when I leave. I'm going to empower you with my spirit. And after I'm gone, you'll remember everything I ever said to you. Now, some of you went to college and grad school and post-grad. Some of you are in the medical profession, and you went to lots and lots of schooling. And you, like all of us who went to college or grad school, you got through classes. There are some classes you just finished and got through them, and you're never going to open that book again. Statistics was one of those for me. I did it once. May I never have to do it again. I don't like statistics. I'm sorry for you math-minded people. You're smarter than me. I hated statistics. I learned a thing. I think I got a C and got out. That was my goal. I don't remember any of it. Grad school, 136 hours of grad school programs. You know what? Later in life, I go, I remember so-and-so saying this. I remember in that class, this one professor always said, and some of it comes back, probably one one thousandth of what they tried to pour into my head, right? The disciples remember everything Christ did or said once he leaves and sends his spirit. I'll remind you of all truth. So the corpus of literature, the body of literature we call the New Testament, is the result of Jesus being with these 12, 11 men. Later they'll add, they'll replace the 12. And so we begin this gospel account. He comes on scene. He's identified as the Son of God. He goes to work to do the ministry God sent him. He summons, handpicks these 12, and he makes them his apostles to begin this process of changing the world for Christ. Now, Peter's name heads the list in every New Testament listing of the apostles. There's a little bit of change in the order in one of the gospel accounts, and there's a lot of study done on the listing and why the listing. 
I just want to give you a high view of it uh, as we were introduced to them this morning. The first four names are important in order. We begin with Peter. Uh, Mark has called him Simon up to now, and he introduces the nickname Peter, Rock, and he'll be called Simon or Simon Peter from now on, except for one time he'll refer to him only as Simon. It's a descriptive title of his character. We'll get to that more in the gospel. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, uh, the brother of James, are introduced as a set. They're called Boanerges, Boanerges, meaning sons of thunder. And there's a lot of backstory as to why they probably have this nickname, uh, so to speak. But we have at least two accounts in the New Testament that might give us a little insight on why they're called sons of thunder. In Mark chapter 9, verse 38, there's some other disciples casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they get really mad about it. And they get all worked up, and they speak to Jesus, and he says, just don't worry about it, basically, paraphrase. And then in Luke 9, um, they, they have this bravado where they say, do you want us, Lord, to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And Jesus says, no, you know, take a chill pill. That's paraphrase too, chill out. Um, so he calls them sons of thunder. We get a little glimpse of these guys were, you know, they were the ready, fire, aim guys. They were, let's go fix this. Let's stop this, Lord. And so they get this nickname. Uh, interestingly, in uh, Acts 12, 2, John is the first martyr. And some want to connect this boisterous, thunderous personality, maybe getting him into trouble. Maybe he's taking in the story too far, but he is the first martyr recorded in the New Testament uh, of, of the twelve. Andrew is a Greek name meaning manly. He takes second place to his brother Peter. Philip is the name that leads the second group of the names here. He is from the city of Bethsaida, uh, also the same hometown of Andrew and Peter. Bartholomew is a name derived, like in the Hebrew we have Ben-Amin, the son of Benjamin, Ben being the son of. Uh, in the New Testament, or in Greek, you have Bar, Bart being the son and this is, so this is the son of Ptolemy, would be his father's name, is how he was remembered. He's called Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. Matthew, the Levite, we were introduced in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, as the uh, publican. Uh, Thomas, we know very little about him except for the Gospel of John, where we have the doubting Thomas stories. He's known as Thomas Didymus, which means a twin, so he evidently had a twin. James, the son of Alphaeus distinguishes him from James, the son of Zebedee, earlier in the list. Interestingly, in Mark chapter 15, 40, he's called James the Less. I'd like to be known as Michael the Less. <laughs> well, that's Michael, the son of Zebedee. You're Michael the Less. And then we have Thaddeus is the only name that is not uniformly found in the list. He seems to have three different names. Simon the Zealot, and this is an interesting study here. He's from Canaan. Well, not Canaan, Canaanian, might have a marginal note in your Bible. That's a Hebrew term that becomes jealous or zealous. And the way the word is used in the Old Testament is fascinating. It's a very obscure story in Numbers chapter 20, beginning at verse 10, of Phineas. And some of you who've studied the Bible may know the story pretty well. But there was a, a Moabite, a Jew who took a Moabite woman and consorting with her and all sorts of immorality. And this plague is coming across killing all the Israelites who are cohabiting and worshiping the idols of Canaan and Chemosh and Moab and all these things. And Phineas takes a spear and he goes after the Jewish guy and not only kills him, but he kills his wife. A little bit gruesome. And the text says the plague was checked 
24,000 people died until Phineas had the guts to stop this thing. And so he is called a zealot. That's the kind of guy you want when you go to war. Uh, Simon is called the zealot. And then the closing of the list is Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus. And there's quite a contrast from Simon the zealot to Judas the betrayer. If you want to do a fun, I say fun in the study sense, it's a sad story, uh, take the word Judas and look it up every time it occurs in your New Testament. You'll be astonished. The word betrayed is almost always right by his name or within a verse or two of the storyline. He's always known as the one who betrayed Jesus. The importance of the appointment, again, can't be overstated. From chapter 1, verse 16 in Mark to where we are now, we have this big Mark and Sandwich. We've talked about these things, these devices Mark uses to make a point. This is the point, establishing these men to go out to represent Christ, to preach the gospel, to have the power over demons, to herald the message, to be with him. This sets the stage for all that we have in our Bible. And so this beginning is very important in the gospel records of why Christ chose the twelve. Uh, Peter begins the list as the one who will ultimately be the first one to recognize Jesus as Messiah. And Judas ends the list, the one who betrays his friend. Two very simple but ongoing lessons for you and me from this text. Number one, if Christ got a way to pray, who are you, who am I to think we can do this thing without prayer? A prayer is a fascinating Christian discipline. And depending on how you are reared, depending on your experiences you've had in small groups, which may not always be good. When I was a young pastor in a church that had the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night thing, we had prayer groups and prayer meetings, and I was young and impetuous and foolish, but I loathed the prayer meetings because we would pray about why people weren't committed to come out and pray. And we'd complain, and we'd spend more time kvetching than we did praying. And a lot of our prayers were, frankly, veiled gossip. And I'm a young, you know, I don't know anything, seminarian, but I go, this doesn't just, just seem like the way we're supposed to pray. And in my own life, uh, how many repetitions, when you eat lunch today, I triple dog dare you to pray differently than you did yesterday. It's like we're Pavlovian. We say the same thing. When you put your kids to bed at night, you say the same prayer over them you say every night. Variance 2% of the language. What does that tell us about our relationship with the God of the universe? We're speaking to the God of the universe and we're using 15 synonyms. We don't speak to one another the same way. We don't say every morning, thank you for this day, thank you for the food before us, thank you for my coffee. I mean, we don't talk to each other that way, but we talk to the God of the universe with a set of 25 words. What does that say about our view of prayer? The Mennonites said, pray until you've prayed. Gert Bahana, who has an extraordinary story, only those of you my age or older would even know the name, but she spent most of her life living in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, came to Christ late in life and was once asked about prayer, and she said, I do not know what prayer is, I only know that prayer is. I, I in my own prayer life, have been convicted and and tortured by the meaningless repetition that I use in my prayers. 
which is why I love the Psalms. Because I can read a psalm that's a song hymn with theology laden into it and see how the ancients prayed. And I love reading Paul's prayers in Ephesians, the high priestly prayer in John chapters 15 and following, to see how people in the Bible prayed as opposed to the meaningless repetition that I, Michael, can fall into very readily, very quickly. What does it say to us that we bring our own resources to bear for all of life until that affliction problem, interruption thing that isn't working happens to us and then we get all ready to be spiritual and pray? Then I need the pastors in the church to pray for me and why aren't you all praying for me? Someone needs to come to the hospital and pray for me because I'm going to have surgery. It's, it's like there's these times in life that we, that's the Hail Mary pass. That's what happened last night with Georgia and Virginia, uh, the balls, right? <laughs> One second we let go of that ball? There must have been a prayer behind that. <laughs> somebody, some, somebody, some of you balls were praying for that thing. Why is it the only time we pray is in desperation? I'm not trying to make you, please don't hear me shaming or guilting anybody. I'm just asking questions. Stanley Jones writes, prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to the will of God. Prayer is a time exposure to God. I like that. A time exposure to God. So I expose myself to him for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours a day, asking less and less for things and more and more for him. Having him, I have everything. He gives me what I need for character, for conduct, for creativity. So I'm rich in his riches, strong in his strength, pure in his purity, and able in his ability. We all know the ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. If you've been around at all, the Navigators put this little pamphlet out years ago. Seven Minutes with God, ACTS. Adoration, you just pray vertically. Characteristics, attributes of God. Confession, it's not just confession of sin. Confession is a declaration of what is true. I know God is holy. I know he is just. I know he's merciful. I know he's kind. I know I've been saved. I know I've been forgiven. That's the confessional. Thanksgiving, obvious. We're thanking him for who he is and what he's done in our life and lives of others. And then supplication, ACTS, asking God. Now, most of us invert that thing entirely. We spend all of our time asking God. Sometimes thanking, rarely confessing, and hardly ever adoring. It's human nature, I think. Uh, when I was in graduate school, we had a group of guys, and we would skip lunch on Fridays, and we were going to pray for one hour only adoring, just praising God for who he was. And uh, we went in this little classroom, three or four of us, and we would pray. And the first, I don't know how many times we did this, it was, it was excruciating. It was so painful. And we'd read a psalm because we didn't know what to do. Uh, uh, some guy would lead the hymn, and we'd sing, you know, three or four of us, five of us. Well, this thing grew. And as the weeks went on, uh, we'd get there, and time would evaporate. And we didn't announce it. We didn't talk about it. We didn't try to make it grow. But there were probably 15 guys at all-time high that would come and kneel on a tile floor for an hour skipping lunch and just adore God. I've never been part of a group before or like it ever since. And it was a remarkable time where we were just adoring God. And what it taught me and teaches me still today is we're missing the spiritual life by a long shot when you and I try to do this life without prayer. 
I've shared with you uh, reading the Bible through in 90 days. <laughs> Why I decided to do this, I don't know, but I tried to do it. And I'm a little behind today. I've got to make up. And making up's tough. <laughs> you, you miss a day with this one, it's a little bit more inconvenient. But uh, I'm, I've been enjoying it. I've been doing really well for the last couple of days. I'm about an hour behind. So I go down to my office, and I have a Bible that has no markings in it. Because if it has a marking in it, like if I use this one, I get lost. And if I pull a pen or a pencil out, it's over. I'll never finish it. It just won't. So I have, to, I have a clean text with no notes, and I just read. And then all of a sudden, the pen automatically comes up, and then I'm in trouble. But uh, So this morning, I was reading, 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 reading furiously early this morning. And I'm stopping, and I'm trying to take these stories in. You and I have 24 hours in a day. What are you doing with yours? Don't tell me you don't have time. You and I have the same amount of time, period. That's how we use it. And the mornings I get up, I'm excited to get up and get down to my office and read that 90 minutes or whatever it takes, 30, 35 minutes if I really behave. If I don't behave, it's an hour. And sometimes I get lost, which is okay. It's not about checking a box that I read a few verses. It's about time in the Word and praying. And reading these old stories, this morning was all about David and Saul and David's early days before he takes the place as the actual king. And reading those stories I know so well in rapid succession going, what God did with that young boy? And what would he do with you and me? Why do we think we can live the Christian life without a quiet time of prayer and intercession with your Savior, not simply a shopping list of requests when we're in trouble? I'm not saying we don't do that. He invites us to pray for everything. But may I suggest we got the ACTS upside down. And it's always, God, will you do this? Will you do that? Will you help me with this? The time I pray is the time I'm in need. And if I was to go back to E. Stanley Jones, time exposure to God. I align myself with his will, not my will. First primary lesson, so what, from the passage to me is, are you getting some time to pray? Are you taking the time to pray? I can't tell you how to run your schedule, but I think for most of us, if you don't do it in the morning, it's never going to happen. The day consumes itself. Second lesson, so what, is discipleship is alignment with Jesus Christ. Discipleship is the person and works of Jesus Christ are set before us and we're following after that all of our lives. Now he handpicks these apostles to make disciples. They have a different job than just being a disciple. They're handpicked to establish the great commission he's going to give them and that unfolds in the stories of Acts and following. So the church's job for 2,000 years has been to make disciples of all nations. That was Christ's word primarily to the 12, the 11 at the end of the Gospels. And then when it's picked up in Acts, that's what they're to do. They're to make disciples of all ethnos, all nations. And the concentric rings, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. We all know this too well. So discipleship is being aligned to the personal work of Christ. Now, I've been a part of church, churches volunteering and serving for most of my adult life, 36 years and counting, 40 years almost, goodness. And um, every church I go to, 
launches discipleship programs. We've done them here. And we're going to have a study. We're going to have a 12-week fill-in-the-blank. We're going to read some books on discipleship. We have the latest, greatest book and tool on discipleship. We're going to have one-year groups, two-year groups. They're all great. They're all fine, well, and good. Are they making disciples? I find it ironic that a church is still asking the question how to make a disciple when Jesus told us what to do 2,000 years ago. Because we're always looking for something new. We're not satisfied with what the text simply says. We've got to make it more sophisticated. We've got to sell a book. We've got to shrink wrap it. We have to have a study to fill in blanks. My reductionistic theory, you've heard it a million times, God's word, God's spirit, God's people. If you're not in God's word, empowered by God's spirit. And those are linked, by the way. If I just read the Bible to read the Bible, it's like reading a book. But if I read it saying, God, I need your spirit to help me comprehend and understand and convict me and change me because I've been exposed to your word, and then I need God's people around me or I don't do anything with it. Remove any one of that three-legged stool, it doesn't work. Remove God's word, you're on human experience. Remove God's spirit, you're on academics or intellectual. Remove God's people, you got nobody to call you out or encourage you, which we need both, don't we? I need friends that will encourage me. I need friends that will call me out. It's not that hard. Oh, we make it so sophisticated. Well, it's pretty simple. Are you in the Word? Now, I love the technology. I mean, I have the Bible software, all this stuff. I love it. In fact, the way I know what I read is my Bible software sends me a text message in the morning telling me at the time I get up uh, what I'm supposed to read that day. And it annoys me until I go downstairs and read it. And that gets me going. But if I don't make that part of my day, it never happens. I need God's spirit because I'll get, I'll get it wrong. I'll use it wrong. I'll misapply it in my own life. And even worse, I'll tell you things that are wrong, which is the treachery of being a teacher. And I need God's people around me. So some of us, most of us, I hope, are in a community group of some kind. Cindy and I have a group every night, every Sunday night in our home. We do this two-year group. And uh, every Sunday night, every, uh, this, is, this is transparent, naked, not ashamed. Every Sunday night, uh, oh, gosh, we've got a small group. We've got to get ready for a small group. We've got to set the kitchen up. We've got to move the chairs. Every Sunday, every Sunday night we do this drill. Every Sunday night. I'm going, Lord, I've got to do a small group tonight. I don't want to do a small group. I just watch TV. I don't want to do this. And we get the chairs out, and the first couple walks in the door, and within 10 seconds, I'm like, I'm so glad I'm in the small group. Happens every week. Every week I go, I'm so tired. I don't want to do this. These people don't appreciate us. <laughs> they don't love us. Wah, wah, wah. The minute they're in there, I'm hiring a kite. I'm learning as much, if not more, from them than they are from Cindy and me. And then my calendar is populated with guys. Coffees and lunches and after work. It's populated the whole thing with guys. I'm not saying I'm the only one that can make disciples, but that's what I'm trying to do. It's not a one-way street. I know that. Sometimes we talk about nothing. Sometimes we talk about deep stuff. But I do look a man in the eye and ask him a hard question. Or he asks me a hard question. And I encourage him when I see him Maybe not doing the best with his wife. I say, you're better than that. You're a man. And a man means you get back up on the horse and you continue to pursue her. 
I don't really care what or why she's doing it. Your job is to be responsible as a man and love her. And I encourage him. Did you have anybody, an older man, telling you that when you were in your 20s? Any older man telling you to get in the book? Any older man telling you, let me pray for you about that? Do you know what impress that has on a soul? Because that's what God set up. I'm going to choose 12 men to make disciples of the world. And through this corpus of literature we call the Bible, I'm going to tell you how to do it. It's not that hard. But there's no substitute for God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do it on what you've learned in the past. You must do it today, not tomorrow. This passage is really simple. The God-man prayed all night before he picked 12 people, and he picked 12 people to make disciples. Bingo. That's the whole story we just read. What are you going to do with it? He loves you. And you'll never be more content until you're growing in him. You won't find it in the world. But you will find it as you align yourself to God's word, God's spirit, with God's people. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you love us more than we comprehend. As you're concerned about everyone in this room, every therapy that needs helping, that's why you came to heal, but not merely our temporal condition our permanent one. Encourage us each to be in the book, in prayer, time with you, and to be transformed into what you want us to be. Only then will we find true joy in Christ's name. Amen.